What's up, everybody? Welcome and welcome back to the next installation of this wonderful six-part series between When I Knew and Microscope. My name is Samantha. It's great to have you here. And Mike, why don't you do your show intro and pretend that I'm not even here? Okay. Uh, <laughs> welcome and welcome back. There we go. That's it. Welcome and That's welcome it. back to we got it. Microscope. And Kev's here too. Thank God. Still microscope. <laughs> it's still Mike. It's still Kev. You know what it is. Indeed. So on this episode, I don't like an intro to all that. <laughs> so <laughs> as if capitalism wasn't already bad enough, I feel like the consumer market within parenting and motherhood is absolutely insane out of control. So in this episode, we're going to be spending some time basically just pretending that we are the Mythbusters and talking about all of these wretched products that are being advertised towards parents as a must-have item and you can't go without and it's totally safe. And mom, this is going to make you a better mom. And dad, this is going to make you a better dad. Uh, but in my opinion, most of it's absolute bullshit. So if you guys caught the last episode, I did do a bonus episode of pregnancy hacks for under $50 that do actually work. Now we're going to be teetering on the line of do and don't, but we are backing it up with science to add some extra validity. So let's start things off with Kevin, my dear. Hey. <laughs> there, is a, <laughs> there is a cosmetic brand out there called Maley's. They have a product called B-Flat, which is basically a cream that claims to fade slash eliminate stretch marks and increase skin firmness. Now, I know that you did some research on this. As someone who is currently almost 30 weeks pregnant and has stretch marks, and my stretch marks have stretch marks. Um, I Ew. just don't see it's no. It's hey, sorry, no, like, no, no, God like, damn, that, that was uh, fucking it, mean. Wait, no, he means it oh. ew as in discomfort. <laughs> I know. It, I've known him hot. long enough yeah. to know. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, the only person that Mike is vain about is himself. When it comes to other people, he's quite forgiving. No, what he means is that it's uncomfortable, and he's absolutely right. Like. Not only do I have stretch marks and do my stretch marks have stretch marks, but my eczema, like my lovely rash, is now just surrounding my stretch marks. So I wake up every two hours or so to scratch the shit out of myself. It's horrible. So Wait, you scratch to bleed? No, 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 no. I don't oh, okay. know. Right. Oh, and okay. I did, I just cut my nails too. And my dermatologist was like, hey, like I know that everyone loves their fingernails, but like you gotta cut yours because if you do have a scratching fit you can't really give yourself any, any tools to scratch with because I don't know, I can't remember if I mentioned it when I was on the air with you guys or if I only talked about it on the special, but basically I've never had eczema before, ever. I've never had skin problems. Over-the-counter shit has always worked just fine for me. However, when I got pregnant, I developed eczema and it was from my, excuse me, my tits to my toes. And at its peak, I was in the bathtub in a Aveeno, you know, oatmeal bath, screaming at the top of my lungs and crying and using a foot callus scrubber to scratch my body as my husband looked on in absolute horror. And he was trying to like stop me. He's like, honey, you're gonna cut up your body. You're gonna scar yourself. And I didn't care. I was that itchy. So then at the end of it, I got out of the tub. I dried myself off. 
and my husband opened up a bottle of calamine lotion and literally just had to pour it on over my head. Because that was the only thing, that and a Benadryl was the only thing that would stop me from being itchy and would allow me to sleep. So now, (laughs) yeah, it's lovely. So now here we are with this product by a company called Maley's called B-Flat that claims to fade or eliminate your stretch marks and increase skin firmness. Now, for all the moms out there that are listening to this, I'm sure you've already done your research to realize that you can't make stretch marks go away. But Kevin, my question is, based on your research and based on the ingredients, the top one being water, glycerin, and hydrogenated polyisobutene, Mm-hmm. And the last being a try bunch of different one colors. Time. Try that one more time. No, yeah, thank you. you. Got it. Yeah. We can't all have PhDs, okay? <laughs> you almost got it. Chemistry. You were so close, though. So, what does this do? What do those concoction? What does that concoction of ingredients actually do, Kevin? And does it do what it say it? Or does it do what it says it's going to do? All right. So as we know, like usually when you're looking at food ingredients and stuff, the order that the ingredients are listed in is by like what mass of the product that particular ingredient makes up. Uh, So for this one, because water is first, it's mostly water followed by glycerin. That's a thickening agent to give it its, you know, creamy substance. And that's probably what the next like four or five ingredients on this contribute to just to give it that texture. And you don't begin to get to these uh, active ingredients till a little bit down. And according to the manufacturer website, those active ingredients are the avocado extract, the shea butter, and this, uh, product i'd never heard of pink pepper slim and their (laughs) statement about pink pepper slim on this brief ingredient description here says that it's clinically proven to help reduce the appearance of fatty skin around the um stretch marks i'm guessing so i did a little digging on that and i found some cosmetics and toiletries.com article on this very ingredient uh pink pepper slim which is an extract of the pink pepper corn i don't know what type of plants or fern that grows on but it's little peppercorns pepper and they pepper make this there's extract. like black pepper white pepper yeah this is the pink one apparently and they the, the seed this seed extract is what they are claiming um actually helps reduce the appearance of the fatty skin now on the same uh article i was looking at it had a link to the clinical trial itself which didn't work but then Mm. in this article itself it said this clinical trial was actually performed by the company who produces the pink peppercorn seed extract so at the end of my Mm. looking into it that was a little sus so i can't Mm -hmm. say that Mm -hmm. totally fully that it goes one way or the other but there definitely is a conflict of interest in having clinical results of this nature Um, right done by someone who's providing the ingredient i think it's also worth talking about how diverse the skin is i mean not only just in color but just the what would you call what's it called the epidermis is that the scientific word for it that's it yeah the the outer layer the outermost layer of the skin it's so it's just one of those things that there's so many different types 
so many different variables, so many different environmental factors that advertising a product that claims to do something, uh, it's definitely not going to work for everyone. Are either of you familiar with what type of an ingredient would perhaps offer a user some skin tightening. I mean, obviously this is something that Olay focuses on a lot because they have their Olay Regenerous line and that apparently smooths all your fine lines and wrinkles and Neutrogena is in on it, Clinique, everyone is in on it. Um, so, but- yeah, no, I, I, I kind of want to chime in because there was like a really long time where I was really trying to find not even like a skincare routine, but just like skincare products that were actually based in reality and not just mm. them being like, it smooths your skin or like it does complexion. So what I found is that the only thing that has actually been clinically proven to increase, well, increase collagen, which reduces wrinkles is retinol. Yep. And retinol can only be used at nighttime because if you wear it during the day, it interacts with the UV coming from the sun and can actually increase uh, like wrinkles because it breaks down. So yeah, so retinol taken at night actually works. But cool. I don't know if that has anything to do with stretch marks. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. I've, so far for me, the only thing that's been helpful with... I can't reduce the appearance of my stretch marks. It's just, I mean, stretch marks appear when you go through a rapid weight gain and or stretching of the skin due to one thing or another. And your epidermis just cannot keep up with it. And they are really painful and they are really itchy. I have been using the CeraVe healing ointment, which I guess is a newer product to hit the market. It's about 46% petroleum jelly, which if you look at its competitor, Vaseline, is 100% petroleum jelly. CeraVe then took it a step further and they added in some other vitamins and nutrients. So whether it's the Vaseline or the CeraVe, it does help with the itching, but it's not really doing anything to prevent more stretch marks from showing up. I just, you know what, ladies, honestly, you have to remind yourself that stretch marks are actually a good thing. It means that your child is growing and that they need more room because they're growing bigger and stronger. And as a mom, I know that for many of us, looks are super important and body confidence, body image is really important. But you're you're a mom and having a happy, healthy, strong and well child is everyone's top priority and stretch marks are a product of that. So moving on to the next thing, which is super controversial. And Mike, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this. There is a product out there called a Docatot. <laughs> and the Docatot, I'm gonna kick you in the I'm face. gonna I'm gonna calm down. I just Docatot. That is the greatest name of it any product. It is pretty good for sounding. <laughs> so It is exactly, basically what it sounds like. It is a pillow that was invented, and there are other products out there that are very similar to this, but basically it's it's a sleep pillow. It's sort of a, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's a sleep pillow for babies, and you can use it when they're newborn. They say that you should stop using it once your baby figures out how to roll over, but for newborns Mm -hmm. and parents who have newborns at home, they're either using the docatot in inside of a crib, they are using it on top of a couch, or they are putting the freaking docatot in the bed, in the adult bed with them and putting the baby in it. Now, you can already tell that I hate it, 
positional asphyxiation is a real thing. That is how most mm-hmm. babies, if they're in an improper sleep position, they die. Why? Positional asphyxiation. Babies, especially newborns, their little esophaguses are like bendy straws. And they need to be on a hard, flat surface, okay? It is not good for babies to sleep in the bed with mom and dad. It is not good for them, especially once they start rolling, to be surrounded by a pillow or anything, for that matter, because they could roll right into it and they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the the nervous system, which is the science behind this. They don't have the strength to say, oh, geez, I'm suffocating. I should probably move. So, Mike. Dakota, you've done your research. Dakota. What are your thoughts, feelings, and emotions? Okay, so I they're, they're definitely marketed as something that is going to save your child. They're definitely marketed as something that is going to prevent your child from dying. I, I it's it's not going to prevent your child from dying. It's just like a fancy version of like a pillow. And I think you, you know, we, you even said like, you know, there's potential that the child could have asphyxiate within this pillow or this docketot because of the material it's made out of, as well as like, it's the overall frame and structure of it. And I think if you have a, or a lack baby, or the lack thereof, right? No, like I, you know, I'm looking at a photo of it right now and it's just like, it's honestly just like a weird shaped pillow with like a rim around it. It looks like, like it, yeah, a dog it's very bed. bizarre. It looks like it, something. It does look like a dog it bed. It looks like a dog bed, exactly. And it it's, unless your baby is like big and fills in that space, it's really not going to do anything. And even if your baby is big and can fill in that space, there's also potential that it could like turn over that mm-hmm. like little edge and then fall off. Although I don't know how thick these things are. They're but... they're thick, but they're not that thick. I think so. Okay. These are actually banned in Canada. They are okay. that unsafe. That there have been... makes a lot of sense. Yep, uh, and there have been two little... deaths linked to oh, this product. God. Oh, if so, Canada banned it, then they should. Canada's got their fucking shit. They together. have their shit mm-hmm. together <laughs> a Canada. lot better, it appears. Yeah. yeah, and my little bit of reading into this, I found that these docketots, unlike cribs, bassinets, play yards, and bedside sleepers, uh, the in bed sleeping compartments like the docketot are not required to meet any federal safety standards nope. related to infant sleep. That mm-hmm. right away should be your red mm-hmm. flag. Right. I would imagine. And this is my problem is that, Mike, you hit the nail on the head when you said that this is advertised as something that is going to be such a lifesaver and such a such a thing that you can't live without. And it's so unfair, especially to the new parents out there that are so overwhelmed by all of these different products and all the information and just the experience of not only preparing to have a child, but then actually bringing a child home, that it's very sad that there's companies like Docatot that are out there advertising their product as being safe and a must-have when it's not either of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, so the other issue is, look, If your child is the kind of child, because every child is different, that really 
doesn't mind just kind of hanging out somewhere while you very, very quickly, you know, go to the bathroom, get one of those little like chairs that, that sort of is at like an incline and put them in that because in an instance where you have a newborn, they've just eaten, they've been burped, and you, you maybe you want to do some tummy time, right? Because tummy time is really important for their muscle development. And you want to put them in something while also, you know, maybe folding laundry right next to them. That's when I don't have a problem with a product like this. As long as a caregiver is right there and the child is not falling asleep in this on a regular basis or being left unattended in a product like this, then fine. But this is not something that you want to put your child in, in a crib and then walk away. This is not something you want to put a kid in while they're on the couch and then you run off to have a tinkle. This is, and you also don't want to leave a kid on a couch unattended anyway, but I digress. Anyways, Mike, can Mm -hmm. you talk to me a little bit? Because I do want to back this up with science and not just sound like assholes here. Can you talk to me about like, I, I don't even really know what it's what it would be. Is it the nervous system or is it our ability to react to things? Like, if we notice that we're choking or if we notice that something is, like, blocking our ability to breathe, when does that ability to recognize, oh, God, something is wrong with me. I am feeling pain. I'm feeling extreme heat. I'm feeling extreme cold. Like, when does our ability to recognize that and then act on it actually come into play? So. That's a good question. And I, from my understanding, it, we, we innately do not have that, right? So you need to learn that when you touch something hot, you, you either need to learn it yourself or someone needs to teach you that if, you know, if you're mm-hmm. choking or if you're going by something hot and not to touch it, that is not something that our bodies just automatically do that's our brain that's our like conscious self deciding and that's why it's so dangerous in babies because they they cannot communicate and well so they learn at an extremely rapid rate but like you know if they're learning not to choke that's just like you know right too late, too late in the ball game but like we also you know can't teach them the heimlich or like to to notify people so that's right um It's really not until a kid is like three. I mean, as a former childhood educator, and I have a degree in this, like even a child of three, for them to be able to understand calling 911, that's even a stretch. It's really not until like four or five, or in sometimes even. Adults that can't call 911. I was just going to say, sometimes you're 50 years old (laughs) and you can't call 911. And that's the damn truth. And so that's really what, like, I don't want to sit here and like bash products. And yes, I'm the one that chose these products to talk about. And and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to just sit here and bash them, but I do want to make people aware that there are like literal scientific reasons why you should not be using these things. And, you know, for this, it's just like Mike said, this is something that you have to teach a child. They have to understand that touching something hot is going to result in pain and a burn and they're going to scream so on and so forth. So, all right. Both of you, this goes out to you both. I want to talk about B12 because B12 was the only thing that I that I could say, yes, this works 100% and now I can eat something. If I had not discovered my little preggy pop drops, which is basically just a hard candy with B12, <laughs> I 
would I mean I already have only That's gained like eight pounds during this pregnancy, which is not great. I need to be gaining more. Um, so B12. They recommend Wait, what, this. Are you call, what did you call them again? So the, the product is called Preggy Pop Drops. Yeah, it's a hilarious it's, name. Okay, this is this is something <laughs> trying. Is this just the thing where like marketing to new mothers they need to have like a catchy thing? I know. I wish they would just call it B12 drops and then I'd be like, all right, yeah. great. B12 but- dietary supplement that will make you not <laughs> puke all day. Yes. So talk to me, either of you, take the floor. Talk to me about B12. What does it derive from and why does it work to alleviate or eliminate nausea as it pertains to morning sickness? Well, B12 is an essential vitamin and essential because your body it's by itself cannot produce it. In fact, only certain types of bacteria and I believe perhaps some fungi, but mostly bacteria are the only things that are able to produce it. So all that you're getting from mm-hmm. food is because um, these bacteria were eaten uh, by the animals you're eating or involved with the plants that you're eating. So that's where it comes from originally. The, the daily recommended dosage is about 2.4 micrograms per day for a normal person. However, uh, during pregnancy, that goes, or the, the FDA bumps that up to 2.6 to 2.8 uh, if you're lactating. However, the Euro- European Food Safety Authority has set the adequate daily intake at 4.5 micrograms per day or 5.0 micrograms per day if you're uh, lactating versus being just being pregnant. So that's twice all the daily value. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's right away. Honestly. Saying that's twice <laughs> the daily value. Care about their- Okay, they sorry. Care about their people, especially their yeah, expectant they care mothers. About their people. Yeah. What a wonderful way for a society to persist, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's twice as much than you uh, would normally be ingesting. And the reason for that is the fundamental role that vitamin B12 plays in the cell. And it actually is a cofactor for DNA synthesis. So when we say cofactor, that is some molecule that is not the main enzyme that's performing this function that is absolutely essential for that. And think in a growing fetus where it is experiencing basically the fastest growth rate that your cells will experience throughout your entire lifetime will be at those very first stages where you're going from two to four to 16 and so on cells. And to have mm-hmm. DNA synthesis uh, proceeding at the most optimal speed level is number one, it's going to draw from you, the mother, from your B12 stocks. Therefore, you need to replenish that with much more of that than you would Mm -hmm. normally get Mm -hmm. from your normal Mm -hmm. diet. And that's what it comes down to is you were experiencing sickness because you were lacking B12 because it was getting shunted to your growing baby. (laughs) Take that as a supplement. uh, Makes it all better. Yeah, but I actually... I actually didn't know that about B12, that it was a cofactor of DNA synthesis. Again, that's the most fundamental pro- molecular process in the cell. Is that all that's involved in? I thought it might have. Um, hold on, let me think about this. What is it's the structure a, it's of B12? A, it's a second order cofactor. So it, it's actually a cofactor uh, okay. for, methi- for methionine synthesis. 
And therefore, mm -hmm. if you work mm -hmm. backwards from that, that goes to protein synthesis. But I didn't want to go that deep into it for this particular <laughs> But the structure, it's just a big like carbon honeycomb ring with a cobalt sequestered in the middle. So it's also mm -hmm. a source, and that's why cobalt is an essential nutrient that you have to get, uh, but only in very teeny, teeny, tiny amounts, like on the order of 2.5 uh, micrograms per day. That's pretty cool. I would take these things either right before I was going to eat or right after I had eaten because I just had such a lack of an appetite. And I think it's because my body knew that unless I was eating, I mean, well, I'm trying to think my husband's sitting next to me. What were the things early on when I had morning sickness, what were the things that I could actually stomach? There was only like Cheerios I could stomach, granola bars, and yogurt. Both those, all three of those it. things, pretty rich in vitamins of that. Yeah. yeah, I think they're probably supplemented with it as well. Like specifically yeah. Cheerios. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Cheerios is great. Cheerios but, you know, you so. want to try to choke down a little bit of red meat. You want to try to choke down some fish. You want to try to choke down some fruit. I mean, I... I love bananas. Like I might as well be a little monkey. I love bananas. And thank God I'm at a point in my pregnancy where I can eat them again. But I would literally sit there and just take one bite and then I would gag. It was so rude. And I couldn't be around anyone when I ate because I felt like I was being very rude. But anyways, okay. So now while we're on the topic of vitamins, I want to talk to you guys just about like vitamins in general. So right. are there any vitamins and or foods that can truly help a woman with lactation. Now, for those of you moms out there, you know that every single person in the whole world, whether they have kids or don't, medical professionals and perfect fucking strangers are always telling you breast is best. Breastfeeding is really what you need to be doing. Well, listen, <laughs> I've got a little bit of pregnancy brain right now, so I'm a little scattered, but I was never breastfed. I'm adopted. And I am very smart. <laughs> I'm very healthy and well-adjusted. So I understand that it has benefits, but I'm not interested in sitting around and beating myself up if I cannot produce enough milk, which is why I wanted to ask Mike and Kevin about this, because there are women out there that want so much to breastfeed, but they, for whatever reason, be it diet or genetics, they cannot produce enough milk. So Mike and Kevin, is there anything out there that truly does help most women in most cases with lactation or is that all bullshit? So Kevin, I think, let me ask you a question because we uh -huh. haven't talked since we've done our research. In my own research, I wasn't able to find anything that was related to increasing lactation. Same. I just found yeah. I couldn't. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if there's been enough studies done on it. Or if that's not something people are looking at, but I, I don't think we know if there's something that women can take that will increase lactation. However, so, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. However, I did come across a few things that if you are deficient in these nutrients, yes. Yes. it will be detrimental to lactation. And those mm -hmm. things were thiamine which is another essential amino acid so that's part of proteins protein is a big component of breast milk as well as vitamins a and d which probably are involved in the metabolic pathway of the production of breast milk at some point however 
for a well-balanced like Western diet, you generally aren't going to be deficient in any of these. So if you're already eating, okay, if you've gotten over the morning sickness, you're eating back at your, you know, relatively healthy diet again, you're probably not deficient in any of these. These are things that are more seen in um, societies where there's an access to great nutrition like ours uh, sometimes. Yeah. So if you find, I'm so glad that you guys said that. Yeah. I really, I'm so glad because there are teas, there are tinctures, there are pills. I think one of them is, is it like licorice root or like fennel root or something like that, that claims, oh, if you take this, it can help boost milk production. And I haven't really done a lot of research, which is why I wanted to ask you guys about it. Yeah, that but... probably, has, probably has vitamin A in it mm. to some degree. And then they can say that, but I guess not. I guess we don't have to have any evidence whatsoever to make claims <sighs> anymore. Lovely. Again, I think we should all go to Europe. Yeah, and, and this sucks, right? Because again, like to to satisfy the the crowd from my show, from when I knew it's like I said before, women are under, moms are under so much pressure that even adoptive moms are now trying to take supplements and mess with their hormones so that when they do actually get their child after adoption or foster or whatever, they can hopefully try to breastfeed them. And thank you, Mike and Kevin. There's just, there's nothing out there. So that, that kind of actually makes me feel better. And yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about food. Mm, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, no, moving into the food, but because I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about the vitamins and um, specifically that a lot of the studies that I found were really looking at the nutrition of the baby when the mother is breastfeeding on like a vegan or vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. And a lot from what I was coming across was either that the mother needs to take supplements, right? If she's vegan or vegetarian, because the required vitamins are not are deficient within the breast milk and less deficient within the babies. But then there's also women who are breastfeeding and eating a normal diet, but are also taking supplements. And thus there's excess vitamins in the milk, which can actually have very toxic effects on the babies. So you know, I'm not trying to like scare people and saying like, you need to have this exact right amount of vitamins in your system. Um, I mean, I could tell you vitamin D, you could have up to 6,400 IU units of vitamin D in your system. Like that's you could bad. take that supplement. Uh, I, I, international units, that's like the normal way in which uh, vitamins and things are. Oh, um, I heard that. Yeah, if if you go down like the vitamin aisle, they're all in IUs. Yeah, you were over here with like micrograms and milligrams. I'm like, yeah, I only have IUs. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I think you know, getting back to the food and just the vitamin, it's just like if you're eating a normal diet, don't take extra vitamins because that could actually be detrimental. And if you're Interesting. doing a more um, restrictive diet for yourself for various reasons you should probably supplement for the safety of your baby yeah my doctor suggested that i continue to take my prenatal vitamins well into breastfeeding and well into Mm -hmm. motherhood um because i thought i was like oh well then i'll just stop taking them after i have the baby she's like nope you're just gonna keep taking them i said okie (laughs) dokie so all right this will be really quick spicy food 
does it really help put a woman into labor? <laughs> oh boy. This one is one I read that and like that's got to be bullshit. And it is. Yay! There's nothing. <laughs> there's so put down no the <laughs> trial to, you know, put any weight behind that statement whatsoever. There was a hypothesis though that it was because it may stimulate, you know, gastrointestinal movement. Those yeah. because <laughs> the body is just basically a big bag of juice, it would diffuse into the uh, uterine muscles and whatnot and induce uh, labor. Oh, please. And yeah, no, there's <laughs> no, nothing. it's going to give you diarrhea. That's what's going to happen. Exactly. You're going to yeah. have the shit. And a spicy butthole the next day. Exactly. Yeah. You're already going to have a spicy butthole from birth. Now you're going to have one from food and you're going to have a spicy vagina from birth. Even if oh you have a C-section, God. everything down there gets thrown very out of whack. So be prepared. Okay. So, on to the next question. I want to ask you guys, and and again, Mike and Kevin are like doctors or almost doctors. They are not medical doctors. We are not talking to pediatricians or, or nutritionists or anything like that. These are the guys that are running around in hazmat suits figuring out how to get rid of COVID. So um, we take this with a grain of salt. So I want to ask you guys. How do infants slash babies slash toddlers metabolize over-the-counter medicines like fever reducers and pain relievers? Is it the same way that you and I as adults metabolize them or do over-the-counter medications work completely different? And the reason I wanted to add this again is because there's so many parents out there that there, I can guarantee that almost every parent out there, whether it's a biological adoptive parent or whatever, they are all doing their freaking best in a terrifying situation to take care of a child. But sometimes it, what works for adults does not work for infants. So talk to me a little bit about that. How is it metabolized? Is it the same as us? How does it all work? So from a fundamental level, the answer to is it metabolized differently from an adult would be no. Um, because at the when you are born, all of the enzymes that all your cells will be able to produce, those are already like that knowledge is already there. That's not something that's gained throughout life. So at a fundamental level, if there is a pathway for the metabolism of a given compound, like a fever reducer pain reliever, that will be extant. However, the big obvious uh, difference is the amount of that compound that can be metabolized at a given time. So that's why you'll see on your over-the-counter drug instructions, there'll be adults, 12 and older or whatever, and then some instructions for um, younger children, and it may have specific um, directions for infants or just do not use this with an infant because mm -hmm. you can't dose it out to a small enough concentration where it will A, be most effective and B, be able to be safely metabolized through their system. Got it. I, yeah. Well put. Well put, Kevin. Thanks, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, see, that's something that always freaks me out is in just uh, for people who may not know this, you can't even really give kids any sort of an over-the-counter medication that's taken orally until they're like three, 
two or three. I mean, they're just, they're growing so rapidly. They're immunocompromised. Their little bodies are doing everything they can to kind of get them caught up to a toddler, baby, adult, teenager, whatever level. So, um, so that's why they have all these different, like, um, whatever, like dispensers, I guess. Sometimes you can give it through like a syringe. Other times they have these special spoons so that you can make sure that you are getting it exactly right because it can be, yeah. I just, I don't know, man. You know, you hear these horror stories sometimes about adults that are like, well, you know, he had a fever, so I took a Tylenol, so I crushed it up and gave him one. I'm like, he's six months old. What are you doing? (laughs) What do you mean? Yeah, it's just, it's about mass. Like, think yeah, of how much yeah. you weigh and how much Tylenol it takes for you to feel better. And if you're comfortable doing that math, like, if you're not, sorry, let me rephrase it. If you're not comfortable doing that math, just leave that to a doctor. Oh, yeah, please exactly. call yeah. your pediatrician yeah. Yeah. or just take them to an emergency room. And look, fevers are really scary, especially in infants. Infants are already so prone to have seizures, particularly something called a petite mal seizure, which honestly really happens just because their brains are growing and developing so rapidly that they kind of just misfire for a hot chocolate second. And unlike a grand mal seizure, a petite mal seizure can look very similar to your child standing still and taking a poop in their diaper. They can happen and you don't even know. But Wait, I see that all the time. Are you telling me every time I see him pooping his pants in public, he's seizing? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, oh, okay. what I'm no. saying is it's similar <laughs> to see, that. See, I, like, I, I miss that. I miss that. No, no, no. So, like, a grand mal seizure is what we think of when we typically think of a seizure. It is it, it is a drop. It is a loud drop and thud to the ground. It is usually paired with some sort of a loud gasping noise. Um, in some cases, you can foam at the mouth. Your eyes are rolling into the back of your head. Grand mal seizures are very, very scary. But petite mal seizures are scary as well because, um, like, I, I've seen a few in my day. And uh, you'll be in the middle of a conversation or in the middle of an interaction. And all of a sudden, sometimes you can spot it because there will be a small, isolated, repetitive movement. Like, say, for example, uh, someone puts one finger in the air, and then the finger just kind of goes either around in a circle or forward and back and forward and back, and you're going, you know, hello, you know, Sue, are you okay? Are you okay? And they are not responding. No facial expression, no, no blinking, no nothing. And then suddenly they just kind of very slowly, very gently and almost gracefully go down. But with kids, especially with kids, like you can wake up one morning and the kid couldn't even pull the chair out from the table and suddenly they're able to. But like kids, when they are usually going to the bathroom, especially poop in their diaper, like they will freeze because they are trying to push out a poop and a petite mal seizure in some cases can look just like that. Now, the reason I'm talking about seizures is because kids are already prone to seizures as it is, but a lot of times, more often than not, a seizure is brought on by a fever. So I can completely mm. understand why parents and caregivers are, are quick to do whatever they can to prevent a fever from spiking, especially a fever past like a hundred and two degrees in an infant because that is very scary but again call your pediatrician 
over-the-counter medicine, yes, it works the same way, but you have to follow the dosage instructions. If it doesn't have instructions for children under the age of three and says specifically, do not give to children under the age of three, call the pediatrician. They are so used to being paged at four o'clock in the morning for Mm -hmm. very serious and also very mundane things. It's nothing to be embarrassed about, and that's what you're paying them for. So make enough money for that. Exactly. (laughs) Now, I think that with this last question, I think between the two of our audiences, we're in a pretty safe space. Let's talk about vaccinations. Why is it critically important to get your children vaccinated? Or on the other side of the spectrum, if you have the research to back it up and the opinion, why do vaccinations not matter? Talk to me about that. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so I want to ask direct everyone's attention to um shouts out to the center for disease control and prevention as always we've been shouting them out a lot this season but they have one of the best informational web pages i've ever seen about anything um about the recommended vaccinations for infants and children it has a timeline with when each one should occur and uh and it's highlighted when it's the most crucial to have these um, taken. And then below, it has a brief list of what disease each vaccine treats or uh, prevents, what the symptoms of that disease are, and what the potential complications of that disease are. So really, it has every little bit of information you could ever want to know on one little web page. I think it's fantastic. So to answer your first question, what are some of the uh, risks of not or why are vaccines absolutely crucial? You can just go down this list. Uh, let's see, you don't get the hepatitis B vaccine, which is the first vaccine uh, your child can get the day it comes out into this world, is the hepatitis B vaccine. And if you get hepatitis B, you can result in liver infection, liver failure, or liver cancer. None of those things are great. And the list goes on, right? We have polio vaccine. Polio can result in paralysis or death. Um, Rubella can actually, if you, the mother, have not had the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, uh, rubella itself can lead to miscarriage and stillbirth. Mm -hmm. So it goes both ways. It's for your child, but also for you to be protected is also hugely beneficial. Right. So I want to argue the other side of this, and I am not by any means an anti-vaxxer. So if I don't want to, you know, give it to my, if I don't want to vaccinate my child, everyone around them is going to be vaccinated. So they'll be just fine. Mike, can you tell us what exactly is herd immunity and is it valid in this case? So herd immunity is when a certain percentage of the population has encountered a virus or bacteria or a disease-causing microbe and has built up an immunity immunity to that organism. And thus, as the organism does not spread out throughout the population because most of those people are immune to it. That's really what herd immunity is. And that's what we're aiming for when it comes to the COVID vaccines. But I think when someone says that, you know, there's herd immunity in the population for all these different diseases, so there's no reason to vaccinate my child, I think that's, let me put this nicely, 
I don't think that's true because I think especially in this day and age when there are enough people who are not vaccinating their kids that we have dropped below that level uh, or that percentage of population needing to be vaccinated or have encountered this virus to actually have herd immunity. Um, that's kind of like my own opinion on it, but like it's not even about getting herd immunity to keep your child safe. You want to give your child these vaccinations so their immune systems have seen these viruses before so that they do have a fighting chance when it comes, you know, and if it comes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Kevin, can you talk to us about how exactly a vaccine works? And I know that we've been talking about COVID and people seem to think that they understand, but like, what happens exactly when you get a vaccination? Does it change your DNA? Does it then affect, uh, you know, you if you wanted to then go and have children later on in life? Would they somehow be immune to it? Like, what happens when you get a wait, vaccine? So can I just say one thing real quick? No. Sure. So, wait. So <laughs> if, if vaccines change your DNA, sure. that would be... Which language? Oh, that's... <laughs> Did you guys hear my watch? Yes. (laughs) Stupid thing. No. Okay. So if vaccines could change your DNA, that would be the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Because that means there would be like zero disease. Zero genetic disorders. Genetic disorders could be cured if we had technology that could do that. Exactly. Yeah. Like if we knew how to do that. Yeah, yeah, no more the dumbest uh, muscular dystrophy. Like you'd never have to worry about yeah. anything that was chromosomally uh, mediated again. So yeah, first answer your first question, no. And your second question was also no, but I forgot what the second question <laughs> was. So, so if you get a vaccine, so we all understand at this point that the whole purpose of getting a vaccine is so that you can expose your body and your immune system to a certain virus so they can say, oh, okie dokie, this is bad. We're going to create the little bing bongs so that this doesn't affect us in the future. Got it. Do vaccines then have a lasting effect? Like, for example, I've had all my vaccines and then some because I was born in Thailand. So not only did I have to get vaccinated according to the Thai standards back then, but then in order for me to come to America, these doctors had to poke me with every single goddamn thing under the sun before I left Thailand and when I got here. That was like the name of the game. So does that then mean that my daughter will have some sort of... um a genetic understanding or a, an immunity to any of these things because that's and the reason I'm asking is because that's another argument I heard recently well you know I already had the vaccines and these are my biological kids so that means that when they were born they were born with immunity no. and I'm like oh it doesn't work yeah, that way no. it doesn't <laughs> so work Kevin, that talk way to me about that it's <clears throat> it's so interesting and subtle because the the answer to that question is like 90% no, I would say. One of the really cool things about this very topic, about the uh, mother to child I- I- immunity transference, actually is mediated through breast milk. Because when you're breastfeeding, some of the, the what did you refer to them as? Doodads, doohickeys? The bing bongs. Uh, the, the bing, bing bongs. bongs. Those are <laughs> called antibodies. And those are proteins that, 
are circulating through your bloodstream and are able to recognize when a bacteria or virus that causes illness has entered the body if you have those antibodies. Now, in your body, you have cells called uh, B cells, which make those antibodies specific to certain invaders. Now, when you have a child, your child does not have your B cells. Your B cells are part of what's called the somatic cell line, and all somatic cells are not passed down. However, uh -huh. the germ cells, so the sperm and egg cells, those do not have those genetic manipulations that would make them able to produce these B cells that have these specific um, antibodies they're able to produce. So when you're breastfeeding, you're giving your child those antibodies. However, it's very much like the teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a day scenario because yep. <laughs> it's providing passive immunity. And you've probably heard mm -hmm. this with the mm -hmm. COVID um, treatment of giving um, someone who's sick with COVID the pl blood plasma from someone who already had it and recovered and has those antibodies. That's not the same way as a vaccine, because what a vaccine is doing is it's giving you the ability to make those antibodies yourself. So your child still needs to get the vaccine so that their B cells can be trained to make their own antibodies. You can't just keep giving them your antibodies for the rest of their life, obviously. So exactly. that's why that question is super mm -hmm. interesting. It's super subtle because it draws on the idea of that there's this fundamental segregation between the germline, which is passed down to offspring, and mm -hmm. the somatic cells, which is where all the immunology action takes place. Yeah. And this is why we should just be listening to scientists. And I don't know why half of America has such a problem with that. Well, guys, that wraps up this episode. Kevin and Mike, thank you so much for doing this with me again. I'm having a lot of fun. And the response to this has been really great. Uh, very overwhelming, especially on Spotify. People in Europe, they're really eating this up. <laughs> I've noticed that like for a lot of WISP, our main audience is now a pretty even split between like the US and Canada and then Europe. And I feel like a lot of our European audience are just tuning in because they just <laughs> want to make fun of Americans. But luckily, we so. don't we we are making fun of ourselves as well. So <laughs> the joke is on everyone. Uh, we will be back with another episode uh, in about a month or so where we're going to be talking about life after labor and what the hell is going on with postpartum depression and everything in between. So be sure to tune in for that. Um, you can learn more by going to our website, which is WISP.us. And you can follow us on Instagram, but we're kind of, I don't know, I'm pulling away from Instagram a little bit because I don't really feel like a lot of people are on Instagram and we already have such a big audience anyway that it's all good. But, uh, but whatever. Anyways, my name is Samantha. I'm Kevin. I'm Mike. Yay. And we'll see you oh, next time. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and thanks for tuning in. <laughs>